Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to the Toward Wholeness podcast, where we're offering people next steps to take toward wholeness in spirit and in soul and in body. And I'm incredibly privileged today to have as a guest a longtime friend in my life. I, as some of you know, teach with a ministry called Torchbearers Missionary Fellowship. And it was around 20 years ago that I was teaching in Austria and encountered a couple of students within the student body of about 75 students or so, who just really demonstrated a profound quality of leadership and influence among the rest of the students. I won't go into all the details, but uh, they were making a difference. It was maybe the best class of students I've ever encountered in a Bible school. And for that reason, I never forgot those two students. Uh, fast forward about 17 or 18 years, and I'm speaking at a conference in California as, as I'm walking uh, down the, the patio at this conference where I'm about to speak. I encountered John Reinhardt, one of those students from 20 years ago, and uh, he sees me and begins to speak and says, you may not remember me. And I said, John, of course I remember you. You were one of the best gifted leaders among all the students I've ever taught in all the Bible schools. And I told him 20 years ago that he was going to end up in some kind of ministry. At the time, I think he kind of laughed it off. And now, John, here you are, the founding director of Gospel Patrons, whose mission is to empower a generation of Gospel Patrons. You're the author of two books, Giving Together, An Adventure in Generosity, and Gospel Patrons, a great book of stories about people whose generosity have changed the world. So, John, it's an incredible privilege to be with you. Thank you so much for taking the time in this busy season leading up to Christmas to chat with me. Yeah, this is so fun, Richard. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, Gospel Patrons is a ministry that I'm somewhat familiar with by virtue of our friendship. But I, I just want to start by asking uh, a kind of a challenging question because your ministry is really intended to change people's both view of and relationship with money. And so when we're looking at the end of 2020, we are looking at a world filled with problems. Human trafficking is on the rise. Anxiety is on the rise. Suicide is on the rise. Homelessness is on the rise. Addictive behavior is on the rise as people are seeking to cope with the COVID realities, which is also a crisis. There's environmental degradation, political polarization, racism, poverty. And in the midst of all those issues, you are traveling around the globe talking to people and challenging people to change their relationship with money. Why is one's relationship with money such an important thing in the midst of all of these problems? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, Jesus talked about money more than any other single topic, more than heaven, hell, prayer, faith. It seemed like some estimates are saying Jesus talked about money and possessions and stewardship about 25% of the time. Can you imagine, Richard, you're a pastor. If you preached on money, wealth, and possessions one Sunday out of every month, how, how big would the church be? <laughs> yeah. This is a topic that many of us want to avoid or we just don't think about it very often, but the world is preaching very loudly about what our relationship with money should be. And so it's really important for us to pay attention not only to what Jesus talked about the most, but also uh, we need a biblical, truthful perspective in the midst of a world that's pushing everything else on us. 
So when you say the world is speaking very loudly about money, what is the world telling us about money? And what is it, what are, uh, what's the means of delivery for that message from, from the world? Just so we can be aware of it, you know? Yeah, well, I think there's a spiritual battle with money that we often overlook, which is why Jesus talked about it so much. And in Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, mammon's a word that we don't use, and actually most English translations of the Bible translate it as money or wealth, but I believe there's actually more to it than that. Uh, I believe that mammon is an evil spirit, a lying spirit that tempts us to think life is found in the abundance of possessions. Mammon entices us to feel secure or insecure based on our bank account balance, and it baits us to settle for the pleasures of life rather than the treasures of heaven. And this, so Jesus says there's a real battle between God and mammon. He didn't say you cannot serve God in sex or you cannot serve God in politics or God in your career or God in your family. He only pitted these two things against each other. And he, what, what he seems to say is that money is not evil. It's a means of exchange. But when we love it, when we trust it, when we fear it, we're serving mammon. Uh, so this spiritual battle with mammon is, is the single greatest rival to our faith in Jesus. And he asks us to take a long, hard look at it and say, are we being pulled in a direction, tempted, enticed in a direction to think that life is found in the abundance of possessions? And everywhere you look with advertising and even our own fleshly comparison with our neighbors or coworkers or family members, do they have more than I do? Is life going to be found in the abundance of possessions? Would I be happier if I bought this new product or service or went on this new experience or this trip? Is that where life is found? And that's the underlying temptation. I don't, I don't meet anyone who says, I love coins, bills, and credit cards. People don't generally think they love money. But the way that we love money is by loving what it gives us, loving what it does for us, and loving these sort of lies that it, it enables us to live in. Like, if I have more, then I will be what? I'll be more successful. I'll be more approved of. I'll fit in. I'll, I'll be more secure. That's just not how God made life to work with money. Our security and all of that comes from him. But money wants to rival him and lie to us that it can do that for us when it actually can't. As I'm listening to you, one of the interesting things that comes to my mind is a book I read just about a year ago entitled The Way Home, Tales from a Life Without Technology. Hmm. The author of this book, Mark Boyle, he spent a year living on this kind of farm that he was building without any electrical power, but also using like only hand tools on his farm. So no tractor, no chainsaw, you know, and uh, when the when the sun would go down, he'd light some candles and he lived the whole time without power. But, but the year prior to that, or several years earlier, he'd spent a year living without money. And one of the interesting things that he articulated, and he's not a, he's not a believer in Christ as we would define that by any means at all, but he said there was a proportional relationship between his shedding of money and a proportional gain in relational wealth. Hmm. So that as he left behind what he called an addiction to material comfort and money, he saw this increase in relational wealth. Is that part of this equation, do you think, as Jesus speaks about it? 
Yeah, I think Jesus knows that our hearts can get wrapped up around money. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so often our hearts get wrapped up around the things of this world rather than the people that God loves. I'm blown away with the parable of the soils. It's classic. I mean, I'm sure all of all of your listeners would have heard Jesus's parable, four, four different kinds of soil, and he's planting seeds, scattering them among all these kinds of soil. And then when he interprets the parable to his disciples, he says that the seed being sown is the word of God. And the third soil that actually chokes the word out is deceitfulness of, of wealth, the cares of this world, and the desires for other things. And what blows me away about that is that God's word, we would say, is the most powerful force in the universe, can actually be choked out. And one of the things mentioned explicitly there is the deceitfulness of riches. And so God's intending for us to live fruitful lives, 30, 60, and 100 fold, but our relationship with money can choke out that fruitfulness and choke out the effectiveness of God's word in our lives. We can sit in church day after day or week after week or year after year and not actually change that much because there's this fundamental relationship with, with money and wealth that we have that's never being addressed. And it cuts right to the core of our hearts. And so absolutely, I think there's a, there's a connection between how we engage others, how we see the world and our relationship with money. So you haven't done this for the entirety of your adult life. You uh, had a stint in the business world, I believe. Can you just kind of share a bit of your journey and how this vision to change people's relationship with money came about in your life? Yeah, happily. I, I started my, well, I was in university. I studied business and got a degree in business uh, from a Christian university in Southern California. And Felt like it was a it was a good education as far as integrating and thinking through the integration of biblical principles with a, a career in business. I got a job in technology sales, and for two years, God really blessed me in that environment. I got promoted four times. I made a lot of money as a twenty five year old, and paid off all my student loans and student debt. And then there was a sense though that that right there was a, a shift. It was kind of like a midlife crisis I had at twenty five, where after the debts were paid off and I wasn't working for that anymore. The question was, I've learned how to make a lot of money, but what's the point? What's the purpose? What's the bigger purpose? Is it to just get a bigger and bigger house, a faster and faster car, more and more trips, live closer and closer to the beach? Surely God's made me for more than that. <laughs> uh, but I, I honestly think that I was at a place where many, many business leaders and professional people are at today, where they're good at their jobs, they've figured out how to do it well, but they wonder, how does it connect to God, to his kingdom, to eternity, and not just to my wealth and success? Wealth and success aren't bad, but they're not the ends. They're a means to a greater purpose. I just, I had no vision for what that looked like, even though I had studied business at a Christian university and been discipled and had good mentors in my life. Somehow those dots just hadn't connected for me. And so it, it led me honestly to leave business and go to seminary and get a master's of divinity degree and study theology and Greek and Hebrew and preaching for four years because I thought, man, that's where the real action is. Those are not the second class Christians. Those, those are guys are the first class. They're getting to see people come to Christ and preach sermons and build churches and ministries. I, I don't want to settle. I want, I want to serve God in a great capacity. But after I finished my seminary degree, I was sort of at a crossroads because I didn't feel a particular call to be a pastor or take the next step with a particular church. 
And so I really held business and my business experience in one hand, and then this passion for the Lord and ministry in the other. And I, I still did not have a vision for how they came together. So I said to my wife, hey, sweetheart, we've been chasing my dreams for the last four years. What's your dream? And she said, ever since I was 13, I dreamed of traveling all the way around the world in a single shot. Not just going to Europe and coming home or visiting Africa and, and returning, but literally circling the globe in order to become a global Christian and to learn to walk by faith. Yes, that's the kind of woman I married. <laughs> learn to become a global Christian and learn to walk by faith. And I said, let's do it. So we were 29 years old. We put all of our belongings in storage and literally circled the globe for four and a half months. And we were visiting churches everywhere we could and worshiping with local believers in all these different continents and countries. We were seeing some of the great historical sites of the world and uh, learning to walk by faith and uh, follow God as the wind blew, so to speak. And we were, happened to be in Sydney, Australia, and I met a business leader, friend of a friend. Okay, I'll just meet your friend since I'm in this city. And I was told to ask him about the idea of gospel patrons. And here he was, a private equity founding partner of a massive firm. And, and, and he was able to share with me this idea of gospel patrons is that behind every great movement of God are generous business leaders who partner with those who proclaim the gospel. And we call them gospel patrons. Throughout history, God has used business leaders and professional people, not calling them out of their profession, but leveraging the success and wealth and influence of their profession to be partnered with those men and women who are on the front lines preaching the gospel, being missionaries, Bible teachers, starting ministries. And when those two pieces come together, the, the gospel patron and the gospel proclaimer, God does explosive things. And this businessman was sharing this with me now 11 years ago in uh, Sydney, Australia. And it was like an explosion went off in my heart. These two pieces that I was carrying, my, my passion for business, my passion for the Lord came together and united in the most beautiful vision I'd ever seen. And he told me stories about behind the English Bible being translated 500 years ago, William Tyndale had a gospel patron who was a cloth merchant who supported him and funded him and partnered with him to bring the English New Testament into the world for the very first time. So the Bibles that you and I read every day had a business leader helping to fund the original English translation of the Bible or the Great Awakening in George Whitfield. He was supported by a wealthy lady named the Countess of Huntington or John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. And your most famous song in the world probably had the, the wealthiest business merchant of his time in England behind John Newton saying, these hymns are really good. You should get them published. I'll buy the first thousand copies and distribute it among my friends and influencers across London, and we'll see what God wants to do with this thing. And so business leaders are these sort of hidden and gospel patrons are these hidden VIPs behind the, oftentimes behind the scenes, but playing not a small secondary role, but a glorious first class, an unbelievable part, strategic part in what God wants to do in history. I love that you're building a link between uh, the vision that God gives to someone and the necessity of resourcing the vision. When we do strategic planning in the church that I lead, we always think not just about the vision, but we go, it's one thing to have a vision. It's another thing entirely to be able to resource that vision because without the resources to fulfill the vision, the resources being you know time and money and gifted people the vision will never happen. And so one of the missing pieces often in the work of God is the resourcing of the vision 
And so it, if I'm putting into my own words what you're saying, it's like God lit a fire in you to bring the resource and the vision together so that the vision could actually be fulfilled. Absolutely. And I think it's a strategic uh, work of, of Satan, actually, to keep the vision, people with vision and the people with resources separate. I think Satan always works through division. He always works through sort of scattering and dividing. And and God is always working through unity. Jesus prayed that we would be one, that we as a body would be united. And I think when you see these pieces come together, it's so exciting because there are no second class people in God's kingdom. We're just gifted differently, but for the same vision, calling, purpose, and mission. And when we can unite on that, man, it's it's game on. I love that. I think that there, for many people that I've encountered pastorally, People don't like what Jesus has to say about money, and I don't always think it's because they're greedy. I think it's because the things that some of the things Jesus has to say are hard to understand. And so I'm going to give you one example. Uh, when Jesus says to that rich young ruler, "Hey, you've done everything right except for one thing: sell everything you own, give it to the poor, and come follow me." When we read that as you know, Western upwardly mobile Americans or even people lower class or people in poverty. It's just so hard to wrap our minds around such an absolute statement. And, and it's easy to go, oh man, that had to be some kind of a metaphor. And if that's a metaphor, then what else is a metaphor and to be interpreted poetically? And pretty soon I'm reading the same Bible, but the way that I'm interpreting it is reinforcing my lifestyle rather than challenging my lifestyle. So how do you speak with people who have this kind of question mentality regarding these kind of hard sayings that Jesus has about money? This one, for example, sell everything. It seems so so radical to me. Yeah, it, it definitely is a radical call. Do I think Jesus asks everyone to give away everything they have? No. Uh, this is the one time in the New Testament where we see that request being made. And I think what we forget is that in, in Mark's gospel, recording this story, what it says is, and Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him. So this is a loving statement. It's a loving challenge from Jesus. What is it? What's loving about this? Well, this man, like most wealthy and successful people I know, including so many friends, I know how easy it is for us to build our identity around what we're good at. It's easy for us to build our identity around being wealthy or being successful or being influential. And that becomes a deeper and more um, powerful part of our identity than being sons and daughters of God. And what Jesus sees here is that this man has built his identity around this idol of, of being successful, of being wealthy, of being respected in his community. And Jesus says that needs to be challenged. There's like back to the passage we read earlier, no one can serve two masters. If one thing is more dominant in your life, we have to call that out so that God can be first and everything else find its right place and order underneath that. Second thing I'd say to this passage on this particular passage is that Jesus didn't say, give everything away you have, be poor forever and come follow me. He says, sell all that you have, give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Hmm. So it's not actually Jesus trying to make the man poor. I think it's Jesus trying to make this rich man rich forever. 
Eternity is the game changer when it comes to us thinking about money. We all know that everything that we have, we can't take it with us when we die. We can't take any of our wealth and possessions. So it's all very, very temporary. And Jesus is saying, I have the greatest investment opportunity for you. Trade in the the things of this world that will expire in 70 or 80 or 90 years for that kind of treasure, which will be yours forever and last forever that's actually a really, really good deal. I mean, most of us would say, oh, I'd, I'd like an investment that pays, pays out well in 10 or 20 years, a high yield return. And Jesus says, I have the best return available for you. It's not, I want to make you poor. It's, I want to bless you and I want to help you gain treasure forever. We neglect that piece of the story and just go, Jesus wanted him to just be poor. It must be better to be poor, more spiritual to be poor. No, no. Jesus is taking down the idol in this man's heart and actually calling him to trade his treasure in for where it will never fade away. Yeah, that's a really good word. And just to me, a kind of a reminder to be careful when cursory readings of a Bible passage lead us to some conclusion that seems weird, like we just have to sit with it and go a little deeper uh, so that we can understand really the heart of what, what God is saying. I think that that's, that's super valuable. Almost a follow-up question, from in my mind anyway, is I'll share this follow-up question with a story. I was speaking at a, at a conference a few years ago, and it was an adult conference that, though it wasn't billed as such, was essentially for insanely wealthy people. I mean, everybody flew in, some on private planes, you know, uh, some with big boats. It was it was a conference of wealthy individuals. I was there as a speaker, and I don't consider myself a wealthy individual. One of the breakout sessions was, uh, as they're introducing breakout sessions, you know, this, this lady stands up and she says, so my breakout session is about how to responsibly pass on wealth to your children. <laughs> and, and I, you know, I look, at, I look over to my wife and we kind of smile at each other because we've always said our goal is to die broke because we have so little already. <laughs> As pastors, and so we don't have any plans to pass anything on. But I guess the larger point in the moment is I think it's easy when hearing about the challenge of giving to go, yeah, that applies. Man, those people with those big boats and fancy airplanes and seven figures, they really need to listen to that. As for me, I only have five figures or maybe maybe low six figures or whatever is my number, my comfort zone. And I immediately say, yeah, radical generosity applies to people with means, but I'm, I'm not one of those people. And that feels like a lie in a way, yeah, yeah. But, it, but it's easily embraced, I think, because of what you said at the outset, our penchant to compare with others. So, like, what would you say to people who are listening to this and go, yeah, this doesn't apply to me because I'm only making, you know, $75,000 a year or, uh, you know, I own a coffee shop and I'm just getting by and debating whether to, whether I can afford to pay health care uh, for my employees or whatever. It's easy to dismiss uh, discussions of generosity as for the wealthy, for the 1%. What's your response? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. And I think a very common objection because of the, our tendency to compare. And we, are all, we all know people wealthier than us. Or if we don't, we can just look at Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett and right. Bill Gates and go, okay, it's their job. It's all of our job because we all have a relationship with money. 
no matter how much we have or don't have. The rich and the poor can equally love and trust and fear money. And so the one way we can set our hearts free is to release more than we're generally comfortable with. We can release, like C.S. Lewis talks about giving until you can feel the cost of it. And that's actually how you know you don't trust and love money. I think we all we all want more money. There's a tendency to think if I only had a little bit more, then I would be more generous. But generosity doesn't start when you have a lot. It starts with a little. And Jesus talks about that with he who's faithful with little will be faithful with much. And so the time to start giving is not later because there will later will never come if you're always waiting for the next big thing. I, I've known many wealthy people who gave when they were had less money, but even when the money increased, those numbers about what they were thinking about giving or feeling called to give felt big to them. I think of generosity much like a muscle. Uh, if you have one good workout a year and it's in December, <laughs> that's your one time to make a generosity gift or donation to some ministry or church. You can say that that's a good thing, but you're not going to be fit. You're not going to be strong. There's a way to be healthy and strong, and it's to make it a lifestyle, a lifestyle of generosity, a heartbeat of generosity that continues to give. Ultimately, I believe everyone is called to be generous, rich and poor, because it's it's a reflection of who our God is. <laughs> At the center of who God is, is generosity. His heart is to give. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. And, and how did God express his love for the world? He gave. God is a giver fundamentally. When we see him in the garden, he creates this beautiful world, beautiful garden for Adam and Eve to live in and gives them abundance in the garden. Every tree that was pleasant to the sight, every tree that was good for food was theirs. And they didn't work for it. It was all a gift. And Satan comes along and lies to them and says, God's not really generous. He was holding out on you. You kind of have to go take it for yourself. Well, the reality was he had already given them everything. And one tree God kept back to remind them, you're not the owner of the garden. You're just guests here. And as guests, this boundary, this tree, this one tree is going to remind you, you're my guests. Eat freely. Eat all day long. Eat whatever you want, except for this one tree. This tree is a reminder. And I think there's still this deep-seated lie that we have that God is not actually generous, that if I give, he's not going to provide for me. If, I, if I'm faithful with a little bit, I'm on my own. And it's this orphan mentality rather than I'm a son of a great, rich, generous, providing king. He sees my needs. He knows me. It's the difference between having an abundance mentality and a scarcity mentality. And our abundance mentality is not based on positive thinking. It's not based on if I give, then God's immediately going to give back to me tenfold. It's not a give to get mentality. Our abundance mentality is rooted in the abundance of our great, rich, glorious, providing God. When we see and walk with, see and know and walk with him, Jesus says, seek first my kingdom and all these things will be added unto you. What you need for food, what you need to drink, what you need to wear, that's going to be provided for you. But make the aim of your life, the bullseye of your life, seeking first my kingdom. And guys, I really am a good father. I got this. I mean, I have two little children who are 10 and 11 years old. They never ask me, are we going to have breakfast tomorrow? They're hungry when they wake up, but they've learned to trust 
I'm going to provide for them. I'm going to work hard for them. I'm going to bring home food for them. They're going to be taken care of. They don't worry about money. They don't worry about food because they've learned to trust their father. And I think so much of this journey with money for us is actually being discipled out of an orphan mentality that assumes we're on our own and God's not generous into the mentality of sons and daughters of God who know him, love him, trust him, and walk with him. And when we do that, our hearts are free. And so why is this a conversation for everyone? Because it's a conversation about our hearts being free, our lives knowing and walking with God, and then us learning to reflect him to the world so that when other people see our lives, they go, wow, you believe that about God? I've never considered that God was a giver. I always thought he was a taker. I always thought he was a killjoy. I always thought he was a rule giver. Now he's a life giver. He's a freedom giver. And we can experience that and we can walk with him in that way. But it does involve us shifting our mindset and our relationship with money. Well, uh, I have one closing question, but a closing comment before that is uh, what you just articulated so beautifully. I kind of summarize in saying, look, our lives are really these containers designed by God to be continually filled up with gifts from God so that we can then turn around and pour those gifts out into the world. And so I always find it a challenge in my own life to ask the question, am I receiving? Am I receiving, receiving, receiving the good gifts that God has given me? And not only receiving them, but receiving them with gratitude and seeing them as gifts rather than birthrights or rather than uh, you know something that I've earned. And if I can be in that posture of receiving... Then, honestly, I say to people, hey, if you want to debate the existence of God and talk about apologetics and postmodernity and epistemology and postmodernism and logical positivism and evidence for the resurrection, I'm like this. I say, I'll go there because there's tons of evidence. But I say to people, and I mean it, that's not why I believe. I say to people, I believe because I had a crisis in my life and in my emptiness turned to God and God filled me and not just filled me, but filled me to overflowing. So I say to people, every day is Christmas. Every day I'm opening gifts, gifts of conversation, gifts of good coffee, gifts of sunshine, gifts of a run in the woods, gifts of uh, intimacy, gifts of friendship, gifts of challenge. And then out of that fullness, I'm called to freely give, believing that in giving, my cup's not going to be emptied. My cup's going to continue to overflow. So thank you, John, for articulating that, because I think that's like, if we don't begin with receiving, then we'll always feel this sense of impoverishment and we'll never be able to give. Mm, it's good. It's really good. I mean, I just instantly think of Proverbs eleven twenty five: whoever brings a blessing will be enriched and the one who waters will himself be watered. Yep. Uh, it's great word. Yeah, we have so much from God. It's it's learning to receive and believe that we have that available to us and that God wants to continually fill us. He wants to continually bless us as we pour our lives out for others. Well, our desire at, a, at the podcast here is to help people take next steps toward wholeness. And sometimes listening to an entire podcast can feel like drinking from a fire hose. If you were to offer people a single next step in a person's relationship with money, uh, what would that be as we come to a close? Yeah, well, I'm guessing this is going to be aired in December of 2020 as we come into the end of the year. And that's a time when we all naturally think about generosity, even if it's just for tax purposes. But let's leverage that and say, what would a next step look like with generosity? 
I would say two steps. Number one, as you begin to think about 2021, my first step would be to say, what would a giving goal be? If you were to choose and decide on a giving goal for the next year, why don't you decide in December to say in faith, in prayer, with God, with your spouse, what would we want to give away next year? And I would challenge you to exercise some faith in that, in that uh, gift or in that, in that goal. What would it look like? And then you begin to say, well, how much would go to these different churches, organizations, missionaries, ministries that we want to partner with? And then where's some openness where we'll wait for God to bring some unique things into our lives or we'll proactively go seek those. But, but beginning by thinking in a, in a giving goal, having a specific aim with giving rather than being reactive, what would it look like for us to be proactive? But for the month of December in particular, I would say, what would faith look like in giving? Not what would seeking your own comfort do or just assuaging sort of, I should do this, I, my guilt or conscience. The Bible never wants us to give out of guilt. It never wants us to give reluctantly or under compulsion. We're to give freely and joyfully and cheerfully as an act of worship and an act of faith. So what would a, a faith gift look like for you at the end of the year? We all know that there's churches and ministries that are really struggling in this time. And a lot of giving has gone way down because of people losing their jobs and things like this. So what would it look like for you to exercise some faith to say, God, is there one or two ministries or one church in one ministry that I could really get behind and breathe life and wind into their sails for the end of the year so that they can end on a positive note and have a clear and compelling vision for the future. And then actually take the step to say, we're going to release some funds into one or two ministries that we believe in to see and let them know God's with them. We see them, we're partners, we believe in them. And I think that first step of giving in those ways to ministries that you know, trust, believe in, God can do extraordinary things. And you never know where one step of faith is going to take you. (laughs) Not taking a step of faith leaves you where you are. But every step of faith leads to another step of faith and a greater step of faith and a more beautiful story than you could imagine. So what would a step of faith look like for you in giving in December and setting a giving goal for the new year? That is wonderful, John. I echo it completely because something happens when we open our hand, whatever we're holding in there, and we give it away. It loses its grip on us, and that frees the Holy Spirit to really begin to transform us in ways that are unknown to us until the transformative process begins. And so we just have to let go and enter into the generosity, having freely received, Jesus says, let's freely give, and then watch what happens. I want to thank you, John, for the time, for the friendship, for your heart, for your vision for ministry. And uh, I look forward to more conversations, hopefully sooner rather than later, and hopefully as This COVID season begins to wind down in the year ahead, uh, hopefully face-to-face, either up here in Seattle or down in Los Angeles. I look forward to a cup of coffee with you. It'll be wonderful. Thanks so much. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Uh, This is Richard Dahlstrom, and we'll look forward to being together again soon. Bye-bye.